You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. Hey, I'm Will, and they call me the doctor. And I'm Joe, the maestro. We host a podcast called Common Creatives, where we break apart the art we love to see what makes it tick. Basically, we give you the definitive take on whatever or whoever we're discussing. You don't need to go anywhere else. So check out Common Creatives wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, for this episode, I am talking to Adam Goldstein of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, once again. This time we're talking about the critical race theory bans. But before we get to that, I have to thank my patrons. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors. I truly could not do this show without them. So for this week, I have to thank Sam, Megan, and Ashmania. And if you would like to join their number, just go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long for a dollar a month, five dollars a month. You get extra content and uh, it really, really supports the show. This show takes an enormous amount of work. I believe in doing it consistently and bringing you these conversations for free. But in order to do that, I need just a little bit of help. And so my patrons make the show sustainable. The show is also supported by the TV. If you're into weird religious, new religious movements, the occult, live-streamed rituals, talk shows, all kinds of fascinating, weird things are going on over at the TV. And if that interests you, you will get one month free using my promo code SACREDTENSION, all caps, no space, at checkout. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, Adam, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so you've already been on the show before. You you were on earlier this year to talk about free speech. You work with FIRE, which stands for the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education. Tell us who you are and what you do. Sure, absolutely. Uh, my, my official title is Senior Research Counsel. Um, if you don't know what that means, it's because we made it up. Uh, research is because I do research and counsel because I'm a lawyer, uh, mm-hmm. licensed in New York and DC, but fire has been around since 1999. And it started really when a student was being unfairly disciplined for having yelled something outside of his window that was intended to be innocuous and someone decided it was racist. And it turned on whether it was racist to call someone a water buffalo. Um, okay. <laughs> it's, it's, this does sound, you know, it's, if this sounds asinine to you, you're probably a healthy, well-adjusted individual on some level. <laughs> um, but there were administrators who insisted, I mean, it was really an astonishing series of like head tilts, you know, like when dogs tilt their head, it was like the only reaction you could have to some of the things they said, well, it was, this was a, a student who yelled out of his window, quiet down you water buffalo to sorority sisters who were stomping. And they interpreted that as racial because he was white and they were black. Huh. Um, yada, yada, yada. He, he yelled water buffalo because he was 
uh, a yeshiva student, and that was uh, that's a common term in Yiddish for a, for a noisy person, water bucket. Oh, really? This or- is what he thought. This is just his. Culturally speaking, that's what noisy people are, or water buffaloes. Oh, interesting. Okay. In deciding it was racist, among the things the school argued was that water buffaloes are large black African animals, which is, they're not African, they're Asian. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> had it been a Chinese sorority, this might have then been a more worrisome analogy, but like, right. they didn't even get the continent right for the animal that they decided was racist. So I could honestly, where, honestly, the first time you, the, the moment you said that and, and that, it, you know, he was yelling this at a sorority, the first thing that came to mind was, oh, you know, maybe that could be interpreted as sexist. <laughs> like sure, but absolutely. but it's what you're talking about is so interesting because there are these just cultural chasms that like what can be interpreted as offensive in one culture is uh very different in another culture and so when you get these multi- multicultural places like a big university like that shit can get complicated really fast there's a whole lot of friction we do not experience elsewhere in the world, or at least didn't experience for a long time elsewhere in the world with social media, making the world smaller. That is now we're seeing this friction elsewhere too, but yeah, that's true. But that's really what started Two, you know, two people came together. One was a professor and one was a lawyer to start fire. And since then fire's main concern has been free speech and individual liberties on college campuses. Hmm. Uh, we do that now over 20 years later through a number of different projects. We have, most, I think when most people think of FIRE, they think of the Individual Rights Defense Program, which is people get in trouble for this type of thing on a college campus, they call us and we help them. We also have policy reform experts who work with schools uh, cooperatively to reform bad policies. We've got a litigation team who, you know, to the extent the policy reform department is the angel of mercy, the litigation team is the angel of death. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there's me and my department, we do primarily research, uh, both qualitative and quantitative. Some of that ended up in Coddling of the American Mind a couple of years ago, uh, the Greg Lukianoff and John Haidt book about how an excessive focus on safety has led to students who are risk averse to the degree that actually makes them f- afraid to take chances. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've been I've been encouraging everyone to read the Coddling of the American Mind, even though to quote someone in my Discord server, it has big boomer energy. I'm like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> You know, just just work through it. It's fine. It's worth reading. You don't have to agree with every part of it. I don't agree with every part of it, but it's it's a very worthwhile book, despite its boomer energy. <laughs> it does have a lot of that, and especially I think in the way it portrays social media. Yes, there's absolutely. There's a real sense of like, and I think in the years since John Height, both Greg Lukianoff and John Height have sort of that was very much a John Height thing, and I think he's very dialed in a little bit more into what it is about social media he's worried about. Mm. He's, he feels very vindicated now, now that the Facebook research has come out. <laughs> oh, I can I can imagine. John Hyde is someone who I would absolutely love to get on the show, but he... Well, I'd, he, I'd love to introduce you. I think, I mean, uh, I'd, I'd I would be happy lo- to encourage I would, it. I would absolutely adore that because I've been following his work for years and he would be a really, really interesting person to talk to on the show. Um, yeah, so the found, Foundation for Individual... Let me try that again. Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, you described it last time as like almost militantly nonpartisan. It's like if there is a free speech issue, 
if there is if there is a liberty issue on campus, it's like you are there. Doesn't matter what it is. That's absolutely right. I think you know being nonpartisan is a. Sometimes it feels like it's a shrinking pool drawing inward from the edge, but mm. we are standing in the middle of it. To the, to the extent we can find the middle, we're trying to stand in the middle of it. There's no nobody has ever turned away for any ideological reason. Yeah. There, it's it's almost like uh, you're a doctor. You know, I had when when I was. <laughs> this is such a weird analogy, but you know, I've before COVID, I was a yoga teacher, and it's like I have a policy of just not judging any of my clients' views. That's not what I'm in this studio space with them right now to care about. I'm here to help them with pain. That is it. It doesn't matter who they are, and. It there is something really important about people like that just serving the community, all else being equal, serving serving a specific need, all else being equal. And I do feel like that's kind of a shrinking pool of people. It's um, amazing how many or- groups and organizations there are that are willing to help you if you agree with them, right? <laughs> like yes, yes, exactly. It, you know, and 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 thank you for doing it with yoga. I think and I, I, th- I think I feel the same way in that since I truly believe in the importance of the thing I'm doing, I'm not going to look for any reason to de- deny someone access to it. Exactly. You know, it's like there are these fundamentally fundamental issues that cut across. You know, I also manage a grocery store. It's the same thing with food. It's like everyone needs to eat. I'm not, you know, unless someone is truly egregious, I'm not going to, you know, and a bully or does something terrible in the store. I will never turn anyone away at the grocery store because everyone needs to eat. It's it's similar with like uh in people's individual liberties being defended. It it's that same kind of principle. Um, we need to hang out more. I think I think we we get along very well. <laughs> I would love that. We should hang out some. Um, so uh, there's some craziness going on, and that craziness is what you know. The far right has been has weaponized critical race theory to an extraordinary degree, and there is this sweep of bills across the states banning it within various forms of education. I think that we can separate out a few things here. I expect that I have some listeners who are very critical of critical race theory, and then I have some listeners who are completely down with it. That isn't really the conversation that I'm interested in having with you. I don't, I'm not interested in this discussion of whether or not critical theory is right. (laughs) Instead, Let's focus on the free speech issues of these bills themselves, regardless of what people might think of critical race theory. Does that make sense? Does that sound like the right track to you? It, it does, although I think part of the problem is everyone is operating from a different definition of critical race theory. So I think True. For, all the people yelling, for, for all the people yelling at each other, if we were operating from the definition of critical race theory that existed in the 90s, the sides would, I wouldn't say they'd be switched, but certainly most of the people who are, the, who are angriest about it would be the ones most fervently advocating for it. Right. And that's just a weird, part of it is because people use it as like a Mott and Bailey argument for other things. Part of it is because we haven't found the right name for the thing that people are angry about. So we, we tried to come up with it ourselves when we talked about it internally, whether is it applied race theory? Is it just anti-racism? What is really going on? Yeah, Helen, that's one of the wrinkles of this: is that most of these bills 
don't actually define even the ones that talk about critical race theory don't actually include anything about critical race theory in them and they don't seem to define their terms right and so they don't not not particularly well yeah and so you know like last week i had on uh helen pluck rose i'm not sure if you're familiar with her well yeah absolutely yeah she's very interesting and you know i don't know what i think of her criticisms yet i in part because i would say that i come from a more woke disposition you know like i i consider myself a pretty hardcore lefty but i'm def i'm i'm definitely willing to entertain criticisms of critical race theory and there there might be some merit there and that and, and so that's why i have conversations with people like helen pluckrose right um right exactly but no you're totally you're you're totally right about how these bills fail to define their terms. And when I see discussions about critical race theory online, I'm like, I literally don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Like, I have no clue what on any from anyone <laughs> at this point. Like, it doesn't matter who it is, because it, it's like the Internet is such a, you know, distorted mirror maze hellscape that I don't know what anyone means by something anymore. So with that said, what are the issues that you see with these bills? What What's wrong? What's the problem here? Well, I think there's a, a few differentiation points among them. I mean, first is bills, there's bills that target K-12 and bills that target higher ed. I think categorically, all the bills that target higher ed are both wrong and probably unlawful. The ones that target K-12 might be merely wrong. Okay. Um, but maybe within the power of the legislature to do. And part of that is we, we have sort of flattened the, the education system in our minds where we see a lot of people think of like freshman year as 13th grade. And we just assume that you're going to go to, you're going to graduate and at least for a certain you know segment of the country, you're going to go to college and that's just what you're going to do. And it's instilled in you from birth and there's never a moment where that's not going to happen. And that really fails to grasp that the K-12 system was created to serve a particular purpose, a particular governmental purpose, really, a state government purpose. And the higher educational system was created then to serve purposes of individuals for their own uh, betterment, advancement, the advancement of science and the useful arts and and human progress. Right. Their own formation. Right. That One of the side effects of that is traditionally legislatures do dictate content to K-12 schools. In fact, state legislatures are the only reason we have K-12 schools. There is no federal mandate to have an education system. We have lots of laws that say if you have an education system and you get federal assistance, you're going to have this kind of policy and you're going to offer this kind of school lunch assistance. But if a, st- if a state tomorrow just said we're, we're not doing K-12 education anymore, the federal government would have no quarrel with that. Hmm. Now, that, that doesn't mean that the state is the unrestrained master of that which it creates, but it does mean that it should not shock anybody that the education system the state operates for its own benefit is occasionally given mandates by the state legislature. Right. Which structurally is just us, right? Like we 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 elected them, so we can decide what we want our schools to be. We. Right. We in air he's making, you know, air quotation marks. Right. <laughs> when he says so, we. <laughs> there is obviously a great deal of slippage there. That's where you get into issues like gerrymandering and things. Yes, but absolutely. The, but uh hypothetically at least. I, I see one thing I see about this about these K twelve bills and people say, well, it's shocking to me that the legislature so, would intervene. So, so before so before we we get to that, just to summarize what you just said, there there's kind of a 
a, a four part, four, you know, four blocks that I see in my head. There's the issue of K through 12, and then there's the issue of higher education. And those are two separate issues in regards to these bills. And then there's the issue of wrong, the delineation between wrong and unlawful. Is that right? So K through 12 and then higher ed, those are two separate issues in regards to these bills, and they need to be kind of discussed in different ways. Define the difference. Explain the difference between wrong and unlawful. Well, this is another misconception that people have about the law, is that the law is some great guiding force in our life. (laughs) Arbiter of morality. Right. And the law is simply not that, especially like any country where liberty is a goal. That means freedom to do things that we think are inadvisable. And in the case of of the law, it's meant to be the lowest level of acceptable behavior before society ceases to function. Hmm. And so this is the this is the issue when people say like I'm 18 and I can do what I want. Yes, but that doesn't mean you're not an idiot. <laughs> Unfortunately, the government is prone to the same mistakes. Where I'm the legislature and I can do what I want is sometimes true, even though what they want to do is asinine. And this there's great precedent here in abstinence only education. We have a number of court decisions that that have clarified for us it is totally lawful for a state to de- to declare no student will be informed about contraception in the, at the K-12 level. What we also have is a few decades of pretty strong anecdotal and correlative evidence suggesting that if you don't, they will still have sex. Yes, correct. <laughs> so it is legal <laughs> to have an abstinence-only education policy. It is just objectively wrong if your goal is to avoid teen pregnancy. Okay. That makes complete sense. And I, I'm sorry to derail what you were saying. No, no, no. I think that's earlier. that's an important distinction before we yeah. go any, any further into it because yeah. this is this is the issue is that I have yet to see the bill from well, let me say this about the, about there's there's something else here. A number of these bills that are claim they're targeted at critical race theory are banning things that are probably illegal anyway. Let's clarify what these bills are doing and where they come from. Like, what, what's the origin of these bills? What's going on with them? Uh, about half of them seem to be rooted in President Trump's executive order about critical race theory because they repeat the, the language of divisive concepts. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, air quotes again here, divisive concepts, which is, <laughs> is in the executive order and is now in about, about half of these bills. And the things that, so some of them don't enumerate the divisive concepts at all. Some of them enumerate divisive concepts and they'll say, arguing for the superiority of one race over another, or suggesting that any race has intrinsic guilt for something. Well, we already have laws against racial discrimination in schools. That's Title VI of the Education Code. Yes. So these things would tend to violate Title VI if you were telling people that their race was lesser. That's the sort of thing we would penalize you for anyway. Yeah. And then there's. it also seems to me that there's the issue of... So take... I don't know. And this this might be coming from a place of not understanding what's going on very well. So just, you know, like use me as a case as a case study. I was I'm raised in the South. I growing up internalized a lot of racist assumptions. And then I go to college and, you know, I come from a family that were plantation owners in Raleigh. You know, that's that's my ancestry. And so that was just an unexamined part of my life. And then I go to college and I learn 
the horrifying, truly horrifying things about my history, you know, about the history of the South. Of, of course, I had known it before then, but it didn't really land until I was in college. And I didn't really start grappling with it until I was in college. And there's going to be some guilt. Like, there's just going to be some guilt and shame and big emotions, even just from the basic learning of history. Like, and, and you know, they're, they're going to, learning history is hard. <laughs> like, it, there's, it's, it's confronting all of the complexities and depths of depravity of human nature and how that is connected to us. Like, that's hard shit. And there's going to be some grappling there. It's unclear to me where the line is between <laughs> like what do they mean by guilt? <laughs> like because do you see what I'm saying? I don't know if that makes any oh, sense. Oh, I see what you're saying exactly because this is there's, there's just a news story today about an elementary school in Texas or was it a middle school, one of the two where they were they canceled an author talk and they were reviewing the author's books because some people argued they advocated critical race theory. And the books were about being a student of color, a student of color who goes to a largely white school district and has a bunch of experiences there, and some of those experiences are with bullies, and the bullies were white. Right. And the argument was this is critical race theory because it could make white students feel bad. Oh my g- fucking god! <laughs> yeah, no, that's exact. That is exactly the the kind of thing that I'm talking about. And you know, if someone is particularly fragile and unwilling to confront these challenging experiences and realize, you know, maybe maybe I should be more aware of the ways in which I enable racial biases or the ways that I have been overtly racist in the past. And, you know, and this is part of my and that comes from my history and taking certain things for granted and it and, you know, living in the deep south and just all of that stuff. There's just going to be guilt. Like when you come face to face with that, the first experience is just shame. <laughs> like there's no way around it. And then you work through it. You deal with it. You get over the shame. You pull yourself together and you become a better person. And it's simple. Right. But how everybody sort of grows as a person. Like, yes. you know, I know not everybody wants to participate in wokeness, but I think there's a, there's the argument. No one is born into a state of perfect wokeness. Right. You end up you, you're born and you participate in systems you didn't create that you don't control. You then yes. later may discover, you know, a butterfly flaps its wings and you've actually participated in, in, <laughs> in oppression in some way. Exactly. That you had no way of dealing with or examining, but now you, now you do. And you can do better in the future. But th- th- you're going to have some feelings about that fact when you realize. And I think most, most men in general, like, at some point in, in your life, you participate in, in some type of gender disparity in some overt necessarily like in some kind of overt sexism without realizing right, it over, and and and, and uh, you know at, at a sliding scale of, of intention depending on age and circumstances but yeah no but again yeah. no one is no, no one wakes up with like a clear picture of third wave feminism that they can actually make the decisions they need to make in elementary school or in middle school to avoid being participants in this so everyone is going to every, every thinking person who continues to evolve is going mm-hmm. to experience some of these feelings. Absolutely. And or should anyway. Or they, if they aren't then they're a sociopath. Like if Right, I'd be much more concerned <laughs> anybody who doesn't experience these feelings has has bigger issues than critical race theory. They don't, exactly. they don't need to worry about critical race theory. They need to get therapy. They need to get therapy. Um yeah, precisely. So 
with you know it's it's too vague and what you just cited at, at this school of, with you know literature about bully white bullies and maybe you know and that could make white students feel bad about themselves it's it's the protection of fragility it's the it's the protection of from it, it is a protection from feeling any kind of shame right and and i don't know if that is deliberate or not but that it can be how it's used because these bills are worded so vaguely and it actually blocks progress and introspection on the part of the students. And education is supposed to be hard. Education is supposed to involve this kind of, you know, soul searching and formation of the self. Right. Right. And I think this comes from places where there are, as in, as in anything else where you have lots of actors, there are some people who are engaged in, truly weird abusive things in in classrooms and legislatures are trying to write creatively and broadly to reach those things not necessarily carefully in a way that avoids sucking up a whole bunch of other stuff we're not concerned about or that we want to encourage i mean this is the the most common example is people cite this clark lawsuit of nevada where it was a, a biracial student who presented as white and was and at least according to the lawsuit was told that his late white father was probably abusing his black mother because there was no way for a white man and a black woman to have a relationship that didn't involve abuse because of the power dynamic because of the racial power. Oh, okay. So this is an example of the weird, creepy, ab- abusive stuff that you're talking about. Um, and and whether that should be called critical race theory or not, I have no idea. That just sounds oh, it's clearly not critical race. Yeah, theory. This no. Is something else. This I is mean, this is something else. This is this is uh, neuroticism. That that's that's like uh, uh, <laughs> racial erotic. Not that's not what I want to say. Let's back up. Racial neuroticism, like this this racial awareness this anxiety over racial awareness that's just like heightened to an insane pathological degree and it ends up results in telling a biracial student that their parents were abusive to one another or that his father was abusive yeah that's not acceptable that's no, not okay. and there was another example of this too, which again, this is this is not critical race theory, and I'm happy to go down the rabbit hole of why it's not critical race theory. Let's but it gets, definitely do that in a minute because I think that's worthwhile. I'm happy to do it, but the the Dalton School in Manhattan had a had a racial reconciliation plan that said they were going to measure test scores after two years, and if black students didn't perform as well as white students, they were going to eliminate the science class. Wait, 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 wait. Say that one more time. The, this, this is the Dalton School in New York. They had this plan where they were going to measure test scores. And if after two years, black students weren't performing at the same level as white students, they were going to eliminate the science class. So, Which is I, not critical I, race theory either. No, no. That's, <laughs> it, that's, it starts out like it's going to be critical race theory and it takes a dramatic turn at the end. <laughs> no, that's not critical race theory at all. And, no. you know, there are people like John McWhorter and and Coleman Hughes who argue that that kind of thing is actually just racist. It assumes that black people are unable to learn science is what they argue. I don't know enough about this area to comment on it, but I, you know, people should go listen to their arguments about this kind of stuff. But yeah. Either way, I think that's nuts. Either way, I think that's kind of crazy. Yeah, the, the, the counter argument, which I guess, I guess is the anti-racist argument, which is, I would probably, the shorthand term for some of these concepts might just be anti-racism, is, which I, again, I don't think it's even necessarily fair 
to some people who have who practice a version of anti-racism that isn't crazy. But the, the, the idea mm. that if we have a system we cannot make, if, 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 if racism is so invested into a system that we cannot separate it, then we should dictate equitable outcomes by race or destroy any system that, that, that fails to achieve it. Right. Which I guess is racial Marxism in essence, which is like if, if, if outcomes of the, and maybe this is the best, this is a good time to bring up what is critical race theory and why does it get sucked up into this whole thing? Yes. Critical race theory. And this is just the way it was taught in the nineties. It's examining a system to see if it has racially disparate outcomes, even though it may not be racist in intent. Right. And that can either racism without racists. Exactly. That's that. That's the core concept where that can either be because the system relies on factors that are themselves influenced by decades of racism. It can be because uh, there are there are unanticipated cultural effects. So I can give you two examples, one historical and one current right now um, that critical race theory says, OK, we need to stop and look at this. Hmm. The historical example is uh, drug sentencing in, in the 80s. For a long time, you got 10 times the amount of prison time for crack cocaine than you did for powdered cocaine. Hmm. Seems overtly racist in hindsight. But at the time that people came up with these sentencing guidelines, it had nothing to do with race. They looked at the number of times the drug came up in violent incidents. Hmm. And it was just a lot more people getting shot in crack transactions than in cocaine transactions. Unfortunately, of course, that factor was because of poverty rates and poverty issues that were racially influenced that like, you know, generations of, 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 of Jim Crow led to a, a wealth disparity that was then reflected in crime rates that was then reflected in drug use. So that so critical race theory eventually did get applied to those sentences and they were harmonized to recognize that the number of violent, the number of violent crimes that occur near a drug transaction is not a factor of the drug transaction so much as it is a factor of the area where it's taking place. Hmm. Uh, a current example where this is not just a critical race theory, this is, this is critical theory in general, is some people are starting to put on their resumes when they apply for a job, their vaccination status. Mm-hmm. This creates two critical theory problems. One is a lot of people can't get vaccinated because of a disability. Hmm. because of an immunocompromised system or something like that. And that would, it would violate the Americans with Disabilities Act to discriminate against people who aren't vaccinated. So hmm. if employers are relying on vaccination on the resume as a, you know, unofficial litmus test, they're actually discriminating by doing that. The hmm. other thing is vaccination rates, again, for historical reasons, are lower in black and Latin communities than they are in white communities overall. So you end up even though you have a facially neutral rule, we're only looking at the resumes where they say they're vaccinated, your rule ends up creating a racially disparate impact. Now, critical race theory doesn't say we don't hire people. It doesn't say eliminate the job. What critical race theory says is let's figure out what we're trying to do, figure out why this is happening and see, is there a way to set the system up where we get the information we want without the racially disparate effect we don't? Mm. I'm finding this so refreshing because... Basically, what critical race theory pushes back against is the notion that racism begins and ends with cross burning and with overt racist attitudes. And what it's basically saying, which I think is a really reasonable point, is that, no, there are there is a form of racism 
that is too that that there's a form of racism that results in racial inequality even if no one is consciously being racist and might bemoan racism right and i think that's an incredibly reasonable position i mean and it's obviously true to me and whether someone whether someone wants to call that racism or not it's like well i whatever that's fine we can debate the semantics but at the end of the day there are these systems that despite the best intentions of people who might want to of people usually you know white liberals who want to make the world a better place usually despite those good intentions still end up with racialized results and the, the, the element of i just race yeah sorry go on no, no, no problem. I'll just say the, but this is, you're talking about, about white liberals. I think it's white conservatives too, because mm. the element of critical race theory that sometimes gets lost here is the, its purpose is to return the system to meritocracy. The whole point of critical race theory is that we believe meritocracy is possible and, yeah. can, and can be improved. Yeah. Yeah. If we truly, if we truly gave into sort of cultural Marxism and we say that, you know, equality is a fantasy there is no there is no real equality therefore it must be imposed by the state to make sure all outcomes are equal at that point we don't need critical race theory <laughs> that yeah. you know we no longer care if systems are unequal because they can't be because everybody you know everybody gets treated as badly as everyone else but if mm. you actually believe that the system that, that like the meritocracy can be real and to the extent it's imperfect can be improved this is the specific thing critical race theory is meant to do which is why i think about the people who are in these school board meetings yelling about the critical race theory in schools ought to be encouraging critical. I mean, one of the most common applications of critical race theory in schools is uh, this happened at, at Loudoun County. They did a report that looked at their school discipline and realized that students of color were getting disciplined more harshly than white students for the same offenses and were more likely to suffer expulsion and suspension for the same offenses. And of course they applied critical race theory to that. They looked at that and said, okay, why is this happening? And they engage in different bias trainings for their teachers, different implicit bias trainings for their teachers to try to get that number back to parity. That's what we're, that's what it's for. That's all it's supposed to do is, 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 is to ensure these equitable systems or to make systems that are not achieving the goal we want. And, and this is where like, this is where some people, when they when talk about critical race theory, will bring up the housing market as an example of like a system that was, uh, achieving inequitable outcomes. I, I don't like that because there's a lot of evidence the housing market was being manipulated in overtly racist ways. Yes. It didn't need critical race theory. It needed to stop being racist. That's it. Like critical race theory is, is, is not the tool you, you pull out to deal with the Klan. It's the tool you pull out to deal with well-meaning people who don't see they've missed something. Yes. Yeah. You know, this is, I'm so glad that we're having this conversation after my conversation with Helen Pluckrose. And all due respect to Helen Pluckrose, I, I think she's a lovely woman and very way fucking smarter than me, like Jesus Christ. And, but I'm sure she's smarter than me too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, she, you know, people sometimes buy into the boogeyman. It's like everyone's saying critical race theory. So they think that's the umbrella term for like the crazy things that happen in these other classrooms. But that's not what it is. That's, some, that's something else. This is, that's why, like, we can call is, it applied race theory. We can call it cultural Marxism. We can call it anti racism. Yeah. But, but we need to, like, my, I think the worst possible outcome here is that it's, it's, it's not even that we ban critical race theory. 
It's that people stop defending critical race theory and using it when we actually need it. Like this wasn't, and, and don't get me wrong, I have many disagreements with the founders of critical race theory because they're also the founders behind speech codes in colleges. We have disagree. Okay, so here's, by the way, I, I just want to air this onto the internet. I have disagreements with every single fucking person on this planet. Even my boyfriend and I, whose dick I literally suck and whose ass I literally eat, I have disagreements with. <laughs> Some of them pretty substantial, right? And so I see critical theory as any other field of knowledge. There's going to be some insanity there, and then there's going to be some really good stuff there. Same with postmodernism, same with psychoanalysis, same with psychology, same with whatever it is. There's going to there's going to be some good there, and then there's going to be some some stuff that's wrong. And that's normal. Okay. End public service announcement. No, that's exactly right. And I think some people have carried the, the way critical race theory has gotten this sort of weird reputation, unfair reputation, is because there are some people who looked at the core of critical race theory that says systems can sometimes produce inequitable outcomes that cause racial disparity. And then they took that and took it to another level that critical race theory has never said, which is that every system that produces inequitable outcomes is is racist because systems might produce inequitable outcomes for lots of reasons if you discover that most nurses are women that's not because there's a gender disparity problem in nursing it's because for lots of reasons some of them cultural some of them individual there are more women going to nursing school than men right now right and we might want like there's ways we can push at that for all these jobs. And I think we try to, and Mm -hmm. we make STEM toys for everyone so that we end up, we hope that more people develop an interest. But at the end of the day, we're not, you know, we're, we're discovering this as we go along. We don't know. We don't officially know that biologically there isn't going to be some greater affinity for some professions than others. Hmm. So we, we can try to socialize around that. We can try to educate all we can do and all, and all critical theory I think is really asking us to do is think carefully about the inputs we put into this system so that if that disparity emerges, it is individual choice, individual preference. It's not something that we've pushed people into through socializing. Yeah. And you know, this is something that I walked away from my conversation with Helen Pluckrose kind of uncomfortable about where I'm like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if say all the insanity that I see whenever I log onto Twitter is due to theory, whatever you might want to call that theory, I think that A, might just be human nature on the steroids of Twitter. Like, that, I think it might just be Twitter logic. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, Judith Butler wasn't out canceling people in the 90s. Like, she wasn't, <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. There's something... And I know plenty of people who take a critical theory approach to life who are none of the excesses of the, who, who demonstrate none of the illiberal excesses that we see in certain corners of the Internet and academia. And I and I don't know, that's that was my main discomfort walking away from that conversation with Helen 
I was super uncomfortable, not un- not super uncomfortable with it, but I was uneasy with that. And I, I asked Helen, so I tend to take more of a technological explanation for all the insanity. Why am I wrong? Why? And I don't know if she really gave me an adequate answer. You know, I'm, I'm still working on it. I'm open to her being right. But I agree with you that this is something different. That that the neuroticism that we're seeing in certain spaces online and in the academy and in K through 12, this is something very different. And it is maybe unjustly being labeled as critical race theory. And that labeling of it as critical race theory and then trying to legislate against critical race theory on that basis, just creates this whole slew of problems legally and culturally. And it's like, one, and I'm really worried about this because it's like, once the toothpaste is out of the tube, you, it's hard to put that back in. Like, it's, it's hard to clean up a mess culturally. I, I think part of that, yeah, and, and, and I think you're right that there's a technological element in that. At least this, the, the data we have now suggests that it's something like 2.2% of American adults are active on Twitter. And so yes. the, you, you figure what percentage of them are angry, what 50%, 70% even. We're talking about a, the, the fringe of the fringe. Yes, we are. driving the conversation about what's acceptable in classrooms, about what's acceptable from corporations. There's a whole layer, there's a whole other layer overlay to this about the theory of, of, of woke corporatism, which is the idea that corporations are incentivized to dress themselves in wokeness specifically to defend against actual change. Yes. Okay, so this is something that I talked to Helen about and I and we basically agreed on was and by the way, everyone please go listen to that conversation with Helen and um also listen to uh my previous conversation with Adam where we talk about the principle of pre of free speech, of free speech. Um there is this kind of corporate the this this corporate aesthetic, uh, uh, you know, social justice corporate aesthetics, like, you know, Burger King having a, a rainbow foil wrapped burger or Skittles, you know, having white Skittles because they, they, uh, you know, took, you know, gave away the rainbow or whatever bullshit. Or, you know, another good example of this is Amazon posting Black Lives Matter on their website last year. And I'm like, you fucking ghouls. And <laughs> it's, it's this sort of, it, it's basically like a don't hurt me sign. That's all it is. It's a, it's a don't hurt me sign. Like, d- no, keep buying stuff from us. Don't look at us. We don't have any human rights abuses. You know, ignore the ignore the the fact (laughs) we're the good ones. Ignore the fact that we don't, you know, pay our people a living wage and that we're torturing people in horrific conditions like ignore all of that. Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's incredibly cynical and di- and disgusting to me, and does not it's like result. Live action Mulan, right? Where, where they've got you know, thanks, <laughs> thanks for the cooperation of the Chinese government. What a great thing for representation. It's like I, I get that life is complicated. They got cooperation they from the people. Chinese government. Oh well, yeah they they, they needed permission to film there, so they. Oh, uh, I had no they, idea. There was, you know, I, I've heard different iterations of the story, but allegedly, supposedly, the area they were filming in was not far from a detention camp. Oh my God! Yes, yeah, it, it was very scenic. There was nothing built there. Yay! Um, <laughs> yay for 
like yay for diversity or um uh there's another like when black panther was in theaters and p and this one person on twitter this activist raising thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars so that uh inner city kids could uh inner city black kids could go see black panther and i'm just like you know that's nice that's fine of all the things you could have done with that money though (laughs) like of all the things to help to materially help to 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 provide a material need to people instead of kind of a symbolic gesture of freedom, of of liberty. Well, since most of that ends up back in in Marvel's slash Disney's pocket, I guess. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Most of it just goes back to this gargantuan corp incorporation. <laughs> you know, th- this gigantic corporation that I'm sure has you know tons of skeletons in its closet, and instead of actually going to the people in need. Anyway, I, it's just shit like that. It drives me fucking insane. But you know, you, you add that on top of you've got. The, the far fringes who are vocal on Twitter, companies who are incentivized to participate with that energy. I don't want to say capitulate because they don't. That's the whole point. But yeah. who are incentivized to echo and participate and reflect that energy. And a lot of people with fringe ideas feel very enabled to, or very um, socially defended to enact those ideas. And some of them are teachers and some of those and and this there's other a lot of these things in K12 and what people are calling CRT that just ties into some of the problems with transparency in schools that have predated this issue hmm. where we were we got very concerned about student privacy after Watergate and we 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 imposed these stringent rules about student data that have this knock-on effect of if you're not actually in the classroom you generally don't have any idea what happens there so it ends up now that the level of oversight, uh, not, not that we want people sitting watching everything a teacher does, but the general public's knowledge of what happens in a classroom is so low that when the three or four horror stories come out that, you know, there's tangentially related to, I mean, there's lots of horror stories, but there's a lot more classes than there are horror stories. Hmm. Um, it's enough for them to say, well, I don't know what's going on in Timmy's class. And that's how you end up with people at a school board meeting yelling about critical race theory who would probably support it if they knew what it was. Absolutely. Hold on, my cat wants out. (laughs) So let's drill down into the problems that you as a lawyer see with these bills. Just lay it out as to why these various bills are bad in various ways. Well, even before as a lawyer, first of all, the, the the big problem here, the big sin is conceptually, as someone who cares about education, Anything you do to impose a rule on education that reduces the topics that can be discussed is a bad rule. Mm-hmm. Education should be, I think, for, for those of us who are of a certain age, we, we remembered seeing Sesame Street teach us about Mr. Hooper dying. If you can explain death to a kindergartner, then you can teach anything in an appropriate way. And so that, that's what the profession is for. That's why we trust the professionals to do that. So any legislative pronouncement, any rule that reduces the acceptable number of topics is an anti-education rule as, yeah. as a baseline. That Absolutely. said, when you write broad laws, now, ad- admittedly, this is not necessarily an immediate issue because these laws, for the most part, the legislatures don't write these laws and then they go and just, and, and they affect life. For the most part, the legislatures write rules that 
direct school boards to do something or, or their state department of education to do something. And then the state department of education writes rules that govern the school board, which writes rules that govern the principal, which writes rules that govern mm. the, the teacher. So it's not unusual that these legislative pronouncements would be very broad. But we do see in this recent Texas problem what the problem is. If you write a, a bill designed to prohibit divisive concepts and you define divisive concepts as something that exists in the feelings of an individual. Yes, exactly. It is going to be, you, you've made an infinite lawsuit engine. Everybody will always feel offended by something. Now, I guarantee this, the, the, well, I shouldn't guarantee. The, most of the people who read divisive concepts bills would never think we're going to try to block a children's book because the bullies have an identifiable race. Hmm. That, that was not an intended consequence that I don't think, but clearly some parents are seizing on that and, and trying to see if they can leverage it for that purpose. And this is not going to be the end of that because as you pointed out, there's, there's no way to teach most topics, especially historical topics, but most topics that aren't strictly numerical without causing people to feel feelings about it. Exactly. Um, and and hmm. that's not that, that that would if more parents were to interpret this the, the, these anti, these anti CRT laws as prohibiting this content this, this content we do get into that sort of dystopian area that some people have been afraid of where they say well how do you teach slavery yes exactly like how yeah how how do you teach about America's real history which is unspeakably horrific without evoking some kind of big emotion in students. And it almost strikes me as like the right-wing version of safetyism that Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt talk about on, on various college campuses. It's, it's like, no, don't, you know, it, it, basically, you know, legislating on the basis of, of feelings of feeling legislating on the basis of feelings and those feelings being a matter of am i secure or not am i safe or not am i and there's a there's a degree to which that is reasonable obviously no one we don't want anyone to feel you know prejudiced against or unsafe or like you know <laughs> any anything like that it does there is a degree of it gets there is an extreme form of it, though, where it's like any big emotion, any big n emotion that we might experience as negative is therefore bad. And it's like that kind of safetyism. When in fact, it's like, no, some of those big emotions we should actually confront in an academic space. We should actually work through in an academic space because this is what it means to that that that's what is required in the formation of a soul that's what's required in the formation of a mind and i almost see this as like the right wing version of that in a I, weird I think there's way a public a public adoption of that to some degree yeah i don't think the legislature at least i haven't seen a bill that i think there's legislators who are motivated by that necessarily sure um only because I think maybe of how they're written and, and they really do at times there's even versions of these bills where they will, they will go out of their way to say, no, you should teach about slavery. You should teach about all these other civics topics, but also don't make anyone feel bad about themselves and not, or not, not don't make anyone feel bad about themselves, but don't make anyone. Sorry for the dogs barking in the background. Oh, there. I don't care. Oh, it's fine. We love animals on this podcast. It's all oh, good. They're, they're excited because they're my, my, my sister's dog just, 
got here, I guess. And so they haven't seen him for a while. So there's five of them and they're just going to Oh, he'll nice. Be, he'll be fine in a couple minutes. You have you have <laughs> five dogs. I have six cats. So uh, that, that is a heck of a snuggle pile. I it like it is a snuggle yeah. pile. I wake up in the morning and I'm literally covered in cats. I <laughs> it's great. That's yeah. the dream, right? Like, <laughs> it is. So so the other thing that you talk about is these laws are also redundant in that they what they're trying to ta- what they seem to be trying to target is actually already illegal right and, and there's a couple cases there's a couple of instances where you could argue whether it's actually illegal or not like one that isn't necessarily illegal is this is going to sound ridiculous because you're going to think this is the most obviously illegal one um segregating your classroom <laughs> There's a lot of these, you know, here's general life advice for any educators out there. If your inclusion training starts by segregating the classroom, you're doing it wrong. Yes. I, so mm, for the life of me, I, I have such complicated feelings about this because I am gay and I feel like there are two principles that are getting tangled with the segregating of classrooms thing. I don't know. I'm going to verbally process this and you can tell me if I'm full of shit or not. Um, <laughs> I'm gay. The need to protect gay spaces is really important. Like the need to to protect LGBT spaces where it's like, okay, I can go to a club. I can go to I can go to a club and it's like I am with my people. And there is a sense of solidarity. There is a there is a feeling of safety and solidarity. Safety is the wrong word. Just just like, oh, I can breathe. Like, I don't have to worry about how people are looking at me or how I talk or how I sound. Like, that's really important. There is a necessity for exclusive spaces, exclusively black spaces, like the black church or let me back up. There is a necessity for people to 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 sort themselves to to choose temporary exclusive spaces because especially for minorities because that's so healing for so many people. On the other hand, I get incredibly uncomfortable with a kind of top-down mandatory segregation in a place like a classroom because I feel like that that could actually deepen and inflame racial divisions even more. And so, but that's that's a, a line that's just so delicate, I feel like. I don't know. What do you think of that? Well, no, I think your instincts are absolutely right. And it kind of calls back to our other conversation where we talked about policing the Discord server for TERFs. Right. Where yes. There is this there isn't a need for especially because one of the weird things about the American experiment and this very multicultural civilization we're trying to make happen is that you know we normally don't have a situation where nobody like in 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 Norway one Norwegian doesn't hold up another Norwegian as the ambassador for all Norwegians. Yes. But it is very common to find yourself in a situation where whatever your your, your intersections are Someone is going to put you on the spot as the voice of all of the, all of them. <laughs> yes, know, I am. A regular basis, but it's like, as a gay man, what do you say about this? I like, am the voice of the gays, and I'm like, yes, I am. Well, as, I am as king of the gays for the day. Let me explain to you. Right, 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 right. So there is a need to like have those affinity spaces in parts to figure out like, well, what does it actually mean to be part of this community? What does it actually look like? And and you know, what is 
what is this culture that I'm that I'm part of? Sometimes, whether you want to or not. I mean, I think in the most, you know, you can choose to be a fisherman or not. But other than that, right? Like, if it's not yes. something, if it, if it's an intrinsic identity issue, that's what it is. And just like with the Discord server, there's a need to have that space to grow and develop and figure out what is it that would actually advance our community more. Sometimes, because that's a conversation that has to happen internally. Absolutely. The problem, and I think what you hit the nail on the head about is the top-down nature of it. Yes. If the government has the power to separate people into groups, it has the power to decide who goes where. Right. And that's something I would not want the government, because the government will then start deciding. If the government is, is, is the one who's separating out the Discord servers, the, the government decides if the turfs go in or not. Oh, God. It's a terrifying so thought. why <laughs> our radar goes up. It's like, we don't want, like, we want these affinity groups as decided by the affinity groups, not by, not by the government. Um, it's or by a, great te- or by a teacher. Or, or by a teacher in a classroom exactly i mean it shouldn't be there should not be external authority enforcing it they can make the space for that to happen but mm. they can't be the ones to make the differentiation point of oh you're not black enough or whatever to say that you don't go in, the, in this group right right so right, that's right. why it gets weird in classrooms where and the of course the, the problem then goes once they're set once once those groups are separated some of what gets said in those groups can be this is where the concern about you're making people feel bad about themselves where they'll go and they'll tell the white students no matter what you do your existence is white supremacy no matter what you do where you go the fact that the fact that you're breathing mm-hmm. perpetuates the system of oppression your ancestors set up it's like you can't if, if you're telling kids breathing is oppression, <laughs> this is the sort of thing where I'm not like, number one, yes, I, I'm not troubled by the legislature saying you can't do that. Number two, I'm pretty sure you already can't do that under Title VI. That's just racist. That's just being racist. That's just you're being racist as an institution. But again, so that's that not critical w- race theory. <laughs> that's not critical race theory. Why do people call that critical race theory? I feel like someone like, and I'm putting words in their mouths for sure, but... I feel like a lot of the prominent voices out there, maybe someone like James Lindsay or Brett Weinstein or Helen Pluckrose. Um, Helen Pluckrose Chris is Rufo for making a list. <laughs> what's that? Chris Rufo. Christopher for Rufo for making a list. Yeah. You know, I hesitate put, to put Helen in that list. Actually, I she's she's quite a bit more thoughtful and nuanced than I feel like a lot of those guys are, but. They do call that critical race theory. Why? Why do you think that attitude is critical race theory? I think it, it was really two things. One is unfamiliarity with critical race theory, um, because it when people said, "Oh, this is critical race theory," they didn't know to say, "No, it's not." The second thing is the people who are advancing these really radical, culturally Marxist ideas. I guess I'd call them where. Equity is the only thing that matters, uh, or sorry, I should say equity of outcome, not equity of opportunity is the only thing that matters. When challenged, a lot of their argument was, well, this is just critical race theory. We're I just, see. you know, your system is racist. That's just critical race theory says your system is racist. So is there an argument then that there are multiple forms of critical race theory, some of which are positive and some of which are more negative? Oh, absolutely. That's 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 another way to look at it, and it's it's very much the same the same problem as defining are Islamic terrorists Muslims or not. I mean, we yeah. can 
we can have a top-down definition that says they're not, but they, if they're going to say they are, you're going to end up in a situation where a lot of people are going to have animosity towards a religion that doesn't practice the things they're upset about. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, I it just makes me think of all of, you know, I've like my time in 12 steps. There is a lot of baggage to 12 steps, to 12 step programs that I think is and I think certain interpretations which are practiced are objectively harmful within 12 step programs. There are some 12 step programs that are that the way the culture interprets and practices the 12 steps is legitimately harmful and they're fully 12 step people you know they're they are 100% 12 steppers and then there are other 12 steppers who take a much more um healthy perspective on the 12 steps um that you know that bill wrote back you know in the 20s or whenever and I wonder if it's kind of like that. You know, it's like there's the critical race theory canon, and then people who can identify as being part of the critical theory or as critical theorists can interpret that in different ways. And I would just see that as part of, as just in line with the complexity of human nature you know, as in line with how any social movement they, we are always interpreting. You know, we're, we're always interpreting and reinterpreting and embodying these various practices in very divergent ways, um, even though, even as we are 100% authentically the thing that we claim to be. You know, I don't know. It's complicated. Does well, that make it, any it, sense? It's the same as... as as the straight edge movement really back in the day, right? You have a bunch yes. of people get together and say, we think it's cool not to drink, smoke or have sex all the time. And somehow that morphs into people policing the community by finding people and like slapping their beers out of their hand. Yeah. And it's like, that was never, that wasn't, what does him drinking a beer have to do with me not wanting to do drugs? That doesn't, I mean, these things don't connect to me in my head, but there were people who took that ideology and sought a different way and decided they were going to police it on, on other people. And, and yeah. that was, you know, I do think that a really compelling argument can be made though, that a lot of what people are calling critical race theory has nothing to do with critical race theory. I think that is a totally compelling argument to make. And what do you see as the outcome of these bills? Like where is, where, if these things get enshrined in law in various States, what do you see as the outcome? Well, in the short term, lawsuits, clearly. There's going to be a lot of lawsuits. Mm. I like to think, and this is maybe I'm being optimistic about human progress, we did eventually come to this sort of national realization. Abstinence only had some limitations as a theory in K-12. I should think that we it will not take that long to discover that the many of the bills, if enacted as written, might go horribly and tragically wrong with people arguing precisely what's happening in the school district where they say, oh, this book has, has bullies that share an affinity group with my child, therefore they violate this, this anti-CRT law. Mm. I, I think what's going to have to happen before we really crystallize that moment is it's going to take people to 
have a little bit more of an honest conversation about what CRT means, what's happening, and what what we're what's already illegal, what we don't need new laws to stop, right? And what are what are these troubling practices we want to talk about? Because this is really really the things that that we're concerned about are not that particularly widespread. I mean, there's lots of them everywhere because there's lots of people, but they, we don't need necessarily broad blanket reg- restrictions to prevent people from doing things that healthy normal people don't do. Mm. And mm-hmm. I, I think what, what, one weird effect about this is that, you know, I brought up Loudoun County applying critical race theory to their disciplinary measures. If you call Loudoun County, they'll insist they're not, they don't have any critical race theory there. Mm. And I, I would like to see more schools actually say, let's actually tell you what, how we use critical race theory, because I think it's very unhelpful to say, we don't teach critical race theory. That to me, it's like you go to a restaurant and I say, all this is really salty. And they're like, we don't serve salt. There's no salt on the menu. <laughs> I know there's no salt on the menu, but everything has salt in it. And like critical race theory is influential. And, and there's other places where if I was, you know, if we wanted to get into the real nuances of education policy, I think critical race theory has influenced anti-bullying policy in a way that I think has not necessarily advanced the cause of anti-bullying. Hmm. Because every anti-bullying policy in the country just about use bullying through a racial lens. The problem is, not only is bullying not restricted to racial lenses, but some of the worst bullying actually happens in, in homogenous societies. And bullying in Japan makes our bullying look like nothing. Yeah. And it is not because of racial disparity. It is not because of gender disparities there. It's, bullying it's a- is a problem of every culture everywhere, no matter how homogenous. So to have bully, anti-bullying policies that view all bullying through a racial, gender, protected class lens is not a way to stop bullying. I mean, it may be a way to stop harassment. I'm not saying it's bad to have those rules, but to enact that as the rule and then say, okay, bullying that doesn't meet a protected class is not of interest to us. Right. You end up with, you just have endorsed a lot of bullying. And and has that happened? Basically, like, if it isn't, if bullying isn't an issue of LGBT or or sex or gender or, or race, then it then it doesn't matter? Uh, functionally, yeah, I think in, okay. in most places the policies, if you if there is no class or protected class dis- like nexus there, the policies won't even touch it. That's interesting. Yeah, which That's- is sort of and and that goes back to the idea that the founders of critical race theory were also the founders of speech of speech codes and colleges, and this is the way they conceptualized it, and this is the way it sort of got taken up into literature. But so almost every school that has an anti-bullying policy has some level of critical race theory baked into it. Right. <laughs> Right. No. Well, okay. No critical race theory. Okay. So that's <laughs> that's, that's kind fascinating. Of conversation we have to have. That okay. So what I'm hearing you say is that you you wish a lot of institutions would be more honest about the. the you wish a lot of schools would be more honest about the influences on their education. It's like, you know, Michael Jackson's influence is fucking everywhere. You know, like it's right. it's like basic, you know, he, every, all pop music is influenced by Michael Jackson. So if you if you're a pop artist, then you're influenced by Michael Jackson in some way or, you know, it's kind of like that. Like, just be honest about what is infusing and influencing the procedures and curriculum and so on. Because here's the problem. When they don't say that, when they say there's no critical race theory here and then a week later, like a teacher's group comes out, talks about the importance of critical race theory. 
everyone who's trying to attack critical, critical race theory says, aha, I found it. Yeah, and I it found feels... the proof that they have critical race theory. And of course they have critical race theory because that's how you run anything government related. You have to have, you have to be looking for bias and trying to eliminate it. That's the and decent it, thing to do. And it feels like gaslighting. It does. It, it, it just feels like gaslighting to, to them because they're like, you said there was no critical race theory. I mean, you know, this, I'm, I always have the, the weirdest analogies, and I don't know if this is this is not going to change the conversation very <laughs> This much. is an episode of weird analogies, so go for it. Sometimes they fit, you know. It, it, it's going back to the restaurant thing, right? Like, they don't. The discussion of whether there's too much salt in the food does not need to begin with a denial of the existence of salt, right? <laughs> that, that is not a per, that is not a useful position to take here. I could be totally wrong. Hmm. That could be the appropriate amount of salt. But we can't even have that discussion because I say there's too much and they say there's none. And so we don't even we're not even looking at the salt at this point. We're yelling at each other about the philosophical existence of salt. So we, we can't have a discussion about what happens in the school until we stop having this weird like witch hunt slash denial over because again, you know, critical race theory, it's a tool. It's it's like a hammer, okay? You can misuse a hammer in lots of ways, but you can appropriately appropriately use a hammer. If I go to the carpentry shop and I accuse you of hitting my car with a hammer. Don't say there's no hammers. <laughs> right. Say, you know, we use them only on wood. We use them only in these circumstances. No, n- none of us, we're all trained in hammers. None of us would walk up to your car and take a hammer to it, check your ex-girlfriend or whatever, right? Like that's like, right. that, that's, that's the response that's constructive where we can say, okay, I get you're upset. Let's, let's talk about what we actually do. And even if people were to be more honest about what critical race theory is and isn't and where it is and isn't, that still wouldn't make these laws as they are currently written justified or helpful. So this is so what you're saying is is not a defense of these laws in any way. It's just an no, added not at all. it's just an added wrinkle to this whole cultural discourse. Right. I mean th- th- these laws because to the extent they're defense of the of the existence of the laws, they're defense of the crowds being angry, and then legislators saying, "Well, people are angry. I should do something." Mm. That's the the problem is the solution doesn't address the thing they're actually concerned about, and the thing they're actually concerned about isn't described by the term they're using to describe it. So yes. this ends up being everyone's yelling about a thing, or d- everyone's pr- proclaiming the universality of or denying the total existence of a thing that is just a tool that's existed for 20 years, 30 years now. It's been employed very successfully to improve many of the policies of, of our government. And anyone who believes in the goal of a meritocracy, not the existence, but the goal of a meritocracy, should be calling for more critical race theory to be applied where it's meant to be applied. Not necessarily, you know, <laughs> segregating classes and, and or eliminating classes if the scores aren't perfectly equitable by population distribution. Right. That makes complete sense. We should probably start to wrap this up. Um, but this has been such a fantastic conversation. You're always great to have on the show and you're welcome back anytime. Well, shoot, I'm always happy to have it. And, and th- thanks for having it because there's a lot of people who want to talk, who, who want to echo this, the, these debates, but so much of the coverage is so credulous of the prevailing narrative. Maybe that was what I want to and say I'm, there. And I'm sick of it. I'm, I'm so sick of it. And I, you know, I was telling Helen last week, um, and I've talked about this on my patron show too, you know, the Twitter 
And social media in general really feels like that scene at the beginning of the movie Amadeus inside the insane asylum where <laughs> you just, it's like you walk in and it's just mayhem. And that's what it really feels like. And so I've gotten just so burnt out on the whole critical race theory discourse because all of it feels hyperbolic and delusional in certain ways even while it's obvious that there is a problem and culturally and these bills are part of the problem and also kind of this over censorious culture that certain spaces are cultivating is also a problem and so it's like there are genuine problems but we're all just shrieking at each other and the problems don't get resolved. So this conversation has been super uh, refreshing and productive in my view. Um, any other final I, thoughts? I couldn't agree more. Th thank, thank you for hosting it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you have any other final thoughts? Any Anything else that you want people to know before we close this out? I, I would just say that as someone who's spent, I don't know, 18 years now working with, with with educators, I can absolutely assure you that the things most people who are upset about critical race theory are afraid of are not happening in, in the vast majority of classrooms. Mm. And I think everyone, and I would encourage everyone to get more involved with their schools and, and see what's happening. I mean, I, I not, and I, by more involved, I don't mean go yell at a school board meeting. I mean, you know, <laughs> yes. start, start with a conversation, talk to your kids about what they're learning and you'll, you'll discover that it's actually not, these, these horror stories are exceptionally rare and uh <laughs> i guess maybe maybe my my message is this if you were feeling the inclination to 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 go buy poster board and go to the school board meeting tonight just reflect on the on the totality of circumstances here and maybe just start with a FOIA request <laughs> fantastic advice and uh for people who want to learn more about fire and your work where can they do that at thefire.org Perfect. Yeah. Everyone go check it out. They have a great uh, blog there that Greg Lukianoff does called The Eternally Radical Idea, and I love it. Um, yeah. All the stuff that Fire does is fantastic. So thank you, Adam. This has been great. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by Eleventy Seven. The theme song is called Wild. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. As always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. <laughs>